0: Hello and welcome to Byline Radio. My name's Adrian Goldberg and this is what the papers don't say. Today, carbon wars and solving the energy crisis. Boris Johnson yesterday hosted leaders in the UK's offshore oil and gas industry to discuss domestic energy security in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Russian oil accounted for 8% of UK supply before sanctions were imposed. 4% of our gas is imported from Russia. Johnson is now travelling to Saudi Arabia, clearly a much more humane regime than Russia, to have talks with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman in the hope that he will increase oil and gas production to replace the Russian supplies. The Prime Minister also affirmed his commitment to North Sea Oil and Gas as a key to the UK's plans for achieving greater energy independence. The likes of BP, Total Energies, Shell, Harbour Energy, Neptune Energy, Equinor and Esso were all there at yesterday's roundtable with Boris Johnson, along with the Oil and Gas Authority and Offshore Energies UK, amongst others. People who weren't there include our guests today, including Zoe Cohen, and Claudia from Just Stop Oil, Tessa Khan, a climate lawyer, the director of Uplift and an expert on the UK oil and gas policy, and later on MP turned eco-activist Alan Simpson. And my question today is this, instead of finding alternative supplies for oil and gas, whether in the North Sea, whether in Saudi Arabia, Can we find another way to wean ourselves off oil, gas, fossil fuels in general, both to make the United Kingdom less dependent on the the warp and weft of international politics, but also to help us combat climate change, which is a very real and present danger. I'd welcome your thoughts, I'd welcome your contributions, wherever you're listening to Byline Radio around the world. Before we get cracking, let me just remind you that Byline Radio comes to you from Byline Times. Byline Times is a independent, fearless news organisation which has been exposing amongst other things, corruption at the top of UK politics and Russian interference and propaganda and meddling in the British democratic system for years, long before it became fashionable to do so. We are not owned by any corporate sponsor or any traditional newspaper proprietor we are funded by ordinary people people like you so if you want to support our work please subscribe go to bylinetimes.com if you do become a subscriber or a member you get a monthly newspaper the byline times but you'll also be helping to support the work of byline radio the byline times podcast byline tv and our news breaking website bylinetimes.com which is where you will find details of how to subscribe that's at bylinetimes.com as i say we've got a a stellar cast but wherever you're listening around the world if you've got a contribution to make just a thought a question by all means do join in just request a microphone and i'll get as many of you on as we possibly can between now and one o'clock but i also want to hear in depth and in detail from our stellar cast today let's speak first to tessa khan hello tessa how are you doing you're right
1: yeah, and in many ways, I think that's that's the most acute in terms of the, the crises that we face at the moment, because it means that for people in the UK, at least, you know, we're looking at 22 million people or 6 million families across the UK who are likely to be pushed into fuel poverty as a result of bills going up when the April... Um, Price cap on energy bills rises and then they're expected to rise again later this year in October to £3,000, which is just unimaginable for most people, um, given inflation and everything else. So, you know, this is our dependence on fossil fuels has really, I think, pushed people to their absolute limit in terms of their ability to afford a basic quality of life in the UK. And that's, you know, not to mention, as you say, the climate crisis and the way in which fossil fuels are underwriting murderous regimes all around the world. So, you know, I think the cost of living in the UK at the moment is an especially acute reason for us to reckon with the fact that Um, North Sea oil and gas expansion in particular, which is something that the government and the industry, you know, all of those companies you listed earlier have been pushing for as a way to replace Russian oil and gas um, really isn't an answer because it won't make a lick of difference to the cost of people's energy bills.
0: And and whether and I don't want to aim low here, I'm sure that the listeners to Byline Radio care about all three of the things that you mentioned, climate change, the reality at the moment, at least, of having to deal with these repugnant regimes. But even if there are people listening who don't care about those two points, I suppose I'm just driving away at the fact that everybody pretty much will have to care about how this impacts on the pound in their pocket.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the cost of wholesale gas, which is what's driving up the price of people's energy bills, has skyrocketed. It's increased kind of ninefold um, since about six months ago. And that doesn't change, um, regardless of how much more oil and gas we pump out of the North Sea. The only way we can reduce our energy bills is to get off oil and gas altogether. And there are definitely ways in which the government can make much more significant moves to reduce our dependency on on fossil fuels and therefore to reduce people's energy bills in the short term. So, you know, there are all sorts of measures In terms of energy efficiency, like insulating people's homes, for example, you know, there's lots of analysis that shows that, you know, by doing that at scale, the government can quickly make up for the oil and gas that we'll lose in terms of what we import from Russia. Um, And then there's, you know, scaling up the abundant renewable resources we have in this country as well. So it's really feasible for us to get off fossil fuels quickly. And we're, you know, set to gain on all of those different fronts, the cost of living, climate crisis and making sure that we're not driving violent conflict around the world if we do that.
0: Come back to you shortly, Tessa. But let's bring in uh, Alan Simpson at this point. Uh, Alan is a former Labour MP. He was an advisor to John McDonnell and alan lives in a lovely eco house which i visited in nottingham and uh, alan you've spoken about carbon wars and i'll I'll get into that uh, particular area a great little bit of history uh, i think that is well worth exploring but in a piece that you've written on your own blog you've also talked about the practical measures that Tessa has alluded to that that we might take and which other countries have chosen to take other countries in Europe that are reducing their reliance on fossil fuels. Morning to you, by the way.
2: <laughs> Hello, Adrian. It's lovely lovely to hear your voice again. Yeah. Feel free to talk to me.
0: Talk me through them, what what they're doing in Germany and, and Italy.
2: OK. Um, I mean, it really follows on from what Tessa was just saying, that um, not only uh, are the, the spiralling gas prices, a good reason to to look for other alternatives. Those alternatives take us into, if if, if we're bright about it, they take us into a different economics, which is what we're going to need if we're to avoid climate tipping points into breakdown and and catastrophes. Uh, And they're also a better economics for including the poor. So if you take this idea that that Really, instead of chasing fracking or North Sea oil, um, both of which are illusionary uh, and expensive and aren't quick to deliver, the, the better alternative is to go for installing uh, a million heat pumps a year in people's homes to replace the gas and to um, putting in high-quality insulation in, in those homes as well. Now, if, if you look at models for where this is working in Italy, What the government is doing there is they're actually paying people to do this work. If you install uh, a solar roof, insulate your home, add in battery storage uh, and take out your gas central heating in favour of a heat pump, then you can write off 105% of the costs involved against any tax liabilities that you have over the next five years. And so they actually paying the public to make the switch. Decades ago, Germany did a similar thing um, it, when they used their development bank, the KFW Bank, to offer near-zero interest loans over 15 years, some of which could be converted into uh, just straightforward grants. If you improve the energy efficiency of the property and add in PV installations for your home, uh, and they did this in ways that skipped past the dreadful bureaucracies that Britain has tried to embrace in the catastrophe of its Green New Deal, uh, its Green Deal, um, by saying, OK, the KfW Bank trained the high, st- high street banks. They produced a two sided application form that provided you've got the planning permission and building regs, uh, they, the banks had to process this in one single meeting with your local high street bank. So if you had plans you'd go in, they were duty bound to give you a yay or nay um, pretty much on the spot. So you could get ahead and do the the work. And in a sense, this the contrast with the approaches Britain has taken, which have been monstrously bureaucratic and, and incompetent, Driven builders to distraction because they just couldn't get through the centralized bureaucracy that Britain seems to be obsessed with. So what I'm saying is we've got tons of examples of places that are already driving the changes and they are fantastic changes because they are inclusive. They start with the poorest properties and the poorest households uh, and they say to people, look, we can all build a different economics where there are jobs and skills uh, and a circularity uh, of the, uh, the way the economy works that will get us all through, in which we all become beneficiaries. Now, the question is, people then say, how are you going to pay for it? Uh, and you know, my answer is twofold. One is that all these energy companies that have been pocketing huge amounts of money during the pandemic and before that, they need to be the principal contributors. Um, uh, And so we, you know, a a straightforward profits tax on them would be how to fund it. The other way is there's an intriguing part of what's happening in North America where the the grid operators on a regional basis are given a duty to cut their carbon emissions by 10% a year uh, and have to do it year on year and year and year we're going to have to do that to, to avoid the climate tipping points, but what the grid operators said is, "Well, hang on a minute, we just maintain the the wiring How do we cut our carbon emissions well some of those you can do by changing the supply from high carbon energy sources to to low carbon or no carbon. but the other part is about reducing demand, and they said well we we don't do this; we don't control what happens at the other end of the wires." And so the local or regional authorities said to them, then go and partner up with local authorities so that your ability to pay dividends to your shareholders, to yourselves, is conditional on you meeting that 10% per year uh, reduction in carbon emissions. And if that includes reducing demand, then take your money, take your profits through your income stream and share it with local authorities who are the housing providers who can deliver the home improvements that you're going to need to meet your new statutory requirements. So all of this is ever so doable. So Tessa's ideas can all be wrapped up in a different package of an economics that would be socially inclusive, economically viable, and ecologically exactly what we've got to be doing if we want to survive.
0: Interesting stuff, Alan. As I say, people have got questions about this. I know we have listeners all around the world uh, to Byline Radio. I know Alan's here until one o'clock with us. By all means, request a microphone, and we will try and give as many of you access as possible. We've got Tessa Khan with us as well. We've got Zoe Cohen and Claudia, who we're going to speak to in a moment from Just Stop Oil, but we're keen to get as many of your voices in as possible. So, as I say, request a mic, and if you've got a question of any of our guests, by all means, do uh, do join in. And I should say, by the way, to our guests, uh, if at some point you do need to butt out, I totally understand that, just quietly disappear, that's fine. But if you can stay for for the whole hour, that will be brilliant. But I recognise uh, Tessa and Zoe and Claudia, you may have other things to do as well. That's fine too, if you do need to just uh, quietly disappear from the conversation. But let's bring in Zoe Cohen from Just Stop Oil. Zoe, I thought it was really interesting that although Boris Johnson has said that he is going to meet leaders of the renewables industry and he's going to meet people connected with the nuclear power industry, it it perhaps set the tone that his opening meeting was with North Sea oil and gas producers. This is on the road to producing a a new energy strategy. (laughs) Uh, I'm sure you won't disagree with me, I suppose, but it it, it just perhaps just sets the mark for, for where government sees itself at the moment in terms of reliance or not reliance on traditional fossil fuels
3: yeah. to cheers adrian I'm, I'm here yeah thanks very much for having me on adrian and, and lovely to meet you tessa and alan as well um I agree with a, a lot of what's been said so far um yeah i mean our government seems to be frankly in bed with the fossil fuel companies, doesn't it? So many of uh, a lot of their lobbying money and so on are funded by by fossil fuel companies directly or indirectly. And um, just up oil is fundamentally a coalition of ordinary scared people who have had enough. Um, We've had enough of a government that is actively seeking to kill us in terms of uh, you know, taking action in 2022, when we know what we know, beyond all doubt about the science, they are fully intending to, you know, go with 40 plus new oil and gas licences. And to do that at this time is is utterly genocidal, and it's a complete betrayal of every young person in this country and every young person around the world. Those
0: are strong, Those are strong words, words, aren't they? And are 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 I, are I suppose ordinary, ordinary people, people, people who just, just rely, rely on. on Energy, energy to, to their, homes. their homes oh could you oh, switch, oh, off switch, switch off your just microphone while i speaking zoe there's some horrible feedback there and i'll let you back there I, I, i'm just like you know people listening to this who rely on the gas and oil to to heat their homes to get to school to get to work the reference to genocide isn't isn't that a little bit over the top
3: um, not one bit, uh, not one bit uh, at all, Adrian. You know, the the latest IPCC report that was launched by Antonio Guterres only uh, two weeks ago today, or two weeks ago yesterday, rather, um, said very clearly that half of all of humanity, half of every man, woman, and children on the planet are now in high risk zones, risking um, risking their lives basically from extreme weather, extreme temperatures, humidity, heat waves, drought, um, disease spread etc etc you know he he talked about the ipcc report being an atlas of human suffering and a damning indictment of failed climate leadership so you know those don't those sound like the words that might come out of you know my mouth or another colleague's mouth in just up oil but actually it's the u.n secretary general and he's absolutely right it's it's complete failed leadership he also went on to say that um the lack of action is criminal the lack and and it is criminal it's absolutely criminal you know um uh, it's good to hear alan mentioning climate tipping points but actually um you know we are we're quite likely to be going past 1.5 degrees within the next decade so we have to just stop oil we have to stop new fossil fuel um, investment it's the absolute least we can do the international energy Agency I'm sure you guys know it the IEA said last year didn't they in writing that we can't have any new fossil fuel projects as of 2021 in order to have a hope of staying below 1.5 degrees so that's the energy agency saying that right so to do to let our government take this action uh, Pivotal moment when we should be, as as um, Tessa and uh, and Alan have already said, we should be pivoting away from fossil fuels. But they fully intend to not do that, uh, and we can't let them. You know, um, ordinary people who um, we have no choice but to take. You know, civil disruptive and civil resistance action to to prevent our government from taking these actions, which will destroy our economy, destroy everything we love, and utterly um destroy our children's future. We can't let it happen.
0: So, so is so just what you will be involved, involved in more actions, actions to restrict, restrict, prevent, prevent fossil fuel fossil production?
3: production. Um, we're uh, against a sort of coalition of ordinary people who will be coming together to take uh, peaceful, non-violent civil resistance action during April. Um, to, uh, cause disruption to fossil fuel facilities in this country. Um, and, uh, you know, we have no choice. We have to do this because what's the option if we don't take this kind of action, our government, as they've said in the media, very clearly, they're going to fast track more oil and gas licenses. And any hope of staying below those tipping points that Alan has already mentioned will you know we will go we are holding on to a stable climate by the edge of our fingernails and if we let them continue everything that we know and love from our economy to our public services to our jobs to our um uh, our, our countryside to our families to our food supply everything will be lost
2: adrian, adrian. I, could i cut yeah I go, go, go and, on and alan just yeah what what zoe has just been saying um in a way I think the tragedy of what's happening in Ukraine um, gives uh, a, a, g- gives some clarity to the shift that she is calling for. And um, what we've seen, there, there are two things. The first is how quickly a civilized way of life can crumble and disintegrate. And the second is that, you know, this response from uh, households in the UK offering in excess of 50,000 homes way, way beyond any number of visas that the UK government originally offered to U- Ukrainian refugees, it shows that the public are ready to make much bigger and faster changes than our government seems to grasp. And and that's where it comes back into it, a different approach to climate economics. We are, we are much closer to the tipping points than we realise. And the Ukraine is a, just a, a really good example of how quickly disintegration can take place. But at the moment, we are still this side of a tipping point if we have the courage to do what Zoe is calling for. And that is not get drawn into the notion that a different form a fossil fuel addiction uh, is a is an answer to the mess that we're in. You you don't get out of a dependency uh, on on Putin's oil and gas by switching to Saudi Arabia. It's like saying there's a, a shortage of heroin on the streets, so send in some crack cocaine. This it's it's just a different addiction to the wrong stuff. And what we have to do is to shift the notion so that our whole economic, environmental, and social conversations are about a new form of embracing our interdependencies. And that's where security is being found on so many issues across the piece today. So what Zoe is calling for is not only urgent, but it opens the door into a, a completely different conversation. I, I now say to people, I'm, I'm fed up with being uh, oppositional. Um, I, I'm going to spend the rest of my life being propositional because we have so many really viable, better alternatives within our grasp. We just need the political leadership and courage to take that step. But it's a step into a different future rather than a better yesterday.
0: Alan, thank you for now. And just picking up on what uh, Zoe said there, just reading from a statement issued on behalf of the UN Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, at the time when the International Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report was published last August. He did say it's a code red for humanity. He said, we're already at 1.2 degrees and rising. Warming has accelerated in recent decades. Every fraction of a degree counts. Greenhouse gas concentrations are at record levels. Extreme weather and climate disasters are increasing in frequency and intensity. If we combine forces now, we can avert climate catastrophe. But as the report makes clear, there is no time for delay and no room for excuses. I count on government leaders and all stakeholders to ensure COP26, which was held, of course, in Glasgow last year, to be a success. Uh, Let's bring in uh, Claudia here, because we've been talking about young people. Claudia, you are one of those. So uh, tell me how you... See your future in a world where climate change is a reality, man-made climate change, and where there is a lack of political will to seriously grapple with it.
4: Uh, hi, thank you. Hello, so-
0: Cla- hello, Claudia.
4: Hi, thank you so much um, for having me on. Um, yeah, um, I'm I'm 24 years old, um, and as a young person, and you know, speaking to so many other young people, I think you know we're all absolutely terrified by what's happening around us um and it's just crazy to me you know seeing already we can see the impacts um i'm from latin america my family are from chile argentina and costa rica and just like so many other places all over the world we're experiencing the impacts of climate change already, you know, we're seeing huge droughts, wildfires, and I just don't understand how we are still having to argue that this is an emergency, that this is happening now. And like you said, we've been given a code red for humanity. Um, That is a death sentence for young people if our governments don't act with the you know necessity and urgency that needs to happen so like we've been talking about all these solutions which which are wonderful to hear but like you said it's not a lack of solution it's a lack of of willpower it's the lack of care from our so-called leaders who continue to let us down time and time again
0: We'll go to one or two callers who've joined us as well, Tamara and Mordecai, in just a moment. But I want to bring back uh, Tessa Kant. You know, it's really interesting, Tessa, isn't it, when you hear the group of people that we've assembled, yourself included, and the kind of conversation that we're having, this is a conversation that is not being had in the mainstream media. At some level, I'm proud of the fact that here on Byline Radio that we are having it, but we are in step with the United Nations Secretary-General. We're not talking about something that is way, way out there. We're not talking at the realms of some radical fringe theory. We are the ones who are in chime with what is now conventional scientific understanding. Yet, in media terms, we are very much on the fringes. What sense can you make of that, Tessa?
1: Yeah, Adrian, I mean, you're exactly right. Not only are we advocating for something that is fundamentally scientifically sound, but the economics are now also overwhelmingly in our favour insofar as, you know, solar energy is now 88% cheaper than a decade ago and, and running, you know, a gas plant in February this year now costs four times as much as we'd pay for new solar or wind. So everything that's been advocated for is eminently reasonable by both scientific and economic standards. Um, I think, you know, when it comes to certainly how the media covers it and and the discourse in government, um, I think we really can't underestimate the influence of the fossil fuel industry in our politics in particular. Um, The UK, for example, has the most generous tax regime for oil and gas companies, oil and gas producers, pretty much in the world. It's more profitable to run a big offshore oil and gas project in the UK than it is anywhere else in the world. And that's because uh, oil and gas companies are, as we know, talking to Boris Johnson, they're talking to the Chancellor um, and they're writing policy in this country. So it's really important, I think, that we make it clear to the government who they're actually accountable to. um, And that's obviously all of us and the very, as I said, eminently reasonable concerns that have been expressed by everyone on this call.
0: And you've got very powerful lobbies as well. You've got corporate interests, people who buy advertising in national newspapers. You get organisations like BP, who I know have been run out of town from at least one of their big museum sponsorships, but you've got this real nexus of fossil fuel companies, corporate interests, media interests, often they're the same people or related in business terms to the same people. So, as I say, it's just so frustrating that all we're talking about is, you know, here's this very real problem that we have in the world, and it's now a consensus view among scientists that this is a real problem. And we're trying to say, okay, it's, it's pretty terrifying. How do we deal with it? And yet that debate is is nowhere in the mainstream media.
1: yeah, I mean I couldn't agree with you more, although I think you know there's a certainly a dawning recognition on the part of government insofar as um we've heard that renewable energy is going to be a key part of the energy supply strategy that the government is due to announce in the next couple of weeks. Um, And to that extent, it it looks like they're staring down some of the more extreme calls from Tory backbenchers and and the industry, for example, to restart or have another go at fracking in the UK. Um, But there's still so much work to do, I think, to align what the government does with what people overwhelmingly across the UK actually want, which is to put, you know, our health, our lives, our livelihoods, um, and also, our ability to afford basic goods in this country first.
0: Let's get uh, one or two of our callers in. Thank you, uh, Tessa. This is uh, Tamara. Hello, Tamara. Welcome to My Life. Hi,
5: Adrian. How are you?
0: Yeah, nice to speak to you. Go on then. Um,
5: so I was I was um, initially thinking about the politics of this um, while I was listening to the sciencey stuff because I don't really get that that stuff as well. But what I think is we have to remember is that. You know, scientists have been shouting about this since, what, the 70s? And they were called stupid. They were, you know, they were accused of all sorts in the media because of the propaganda. And the same um, same goes for in the States. If we got money completely out of politics, it wouldn't just help with the environment. It would help with every single other issue that we have with our our politicians. Because if you chuck a load of money at somebody, I'm sorry, but you know those kind of people are going to be corrupted um so i think it's i think that the will of the people has definitely moved on but we keep on getting i mean if you've noticed since um since ukraine um in the states and here the um the the right-wing pundits going out there and screaming for more oil more oil they are just um taking advantage of a terrible terrible tragic situation so um I think if we move if we to move forward in any capacity we have to get money out of politics it just has it just has to happen
2: have we lost you Adrian
0: No, you haven't. Uh, You've got me back now. It's all right. Uh, The technology defeats me sometimes, too, as well. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for that, Tamara. That's brilliant. Cheers. Uh, Let's bring in Mordecai, who I know is a regular listener from the United States and uh, wants to make a contribution as well. Mordecai, welcome. What's your insight on this?
6: Uh, Well, good morning Um, here in the United States. Um, One of the things, and I put this uh, in the tweets, One of the things that that I see uh, as a scientist is that the facts of the science that the world is changing, that we're having what is called climate change, cannot be denied. Um, I personally don't like the phrase climate change because the world is constantly changing. Sunspots have a a different cycle, goes every single uh, day. Every uh, 11 years, the world, in terms of the uh, rise and fall of the uh, oceans, that actually does change on a cycle that has nothing to do necessarily with human beings. What, Based on this science, we have to now go and say, okay, Here's the science. What policies should we put into place that can um, that can help the help the science um, make our world better? And I think that uh, doing things that uh, make people feel better, like okay, getting rid of uh, getting rid of fossil fuels, um, uh, or uh, I don't know um other things like that is a um is something that really uh is a is a problem you take all of this data and you give it o- over to people who don't necessarily understand um understand the impact of what their policies are doing and uh it just it, it concerns me as a scientist i don't think that Uh, We're looking at the whole picture. And the person who just spoke, um, I forget her name, uh, she made a very good point, and that is is that we have a lot of money. Should it be put into particular policies, in this case, science use policies, or can that money be put into other things in the world that are happening, whether it's famine, whether it's the war in um, Ukraine, and have policies which are um, using less money for other things that are uh, environmental science. So that's just a thought I wanted to toss out.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're not questioning the reality of man-made climate change, but you're making a a point, perhaps a broader point, that there is climate change naturally occurring anyway but you don't dispute that, that that man is playing a significant role in changing the climate as well
6: that's 100 100 uh, true 100 percent true there are things that man is doing however we have to look at the entire picture and one of the things i put in uh, the tweets is that sometimes we're not looking at the micro And the macro. We talk about climate change and 1.5 degrees Celsius going up uh, in terms of the global um, uh, temperature of the world. Well, that's good for the global picture, but it could be that in certain areas, uh, let's say for instance uh, Antarctica, an increase in temperature may not be so. may not be so bad because it therefore causes glaciers and when you have these glaciers you have um you have fresh water which is going off and being put into the ocean and that actually is good for people so in a micro level you know in a particular, in a particular level, let's, level say, let's say could i could come i come back, come back at some point, at some point? Oh, oh sure oh so, sure
3: yeah same same can i come in as well adrian
2: You
3: go first, Sammy, you go first, Sammy. Thanks, and yeah, uh, thanks, Alan. Uh, I'm afraid I can't sit quietly whilst I hear someone um, with all due respect saying that global temperature increase is a good thing. It categorically isn't. It categorically isn't. We are a handful of years away of not being able to influence runaway climate change and total civilizational collapse. You know the uh, worldwide agreed science, the IPCC, the complete agreed consensus on this, on the published peer-reviewed science, says that all ice on land is now melting irreversibly. All ice on land is melting irreversibly. We just, you just need to sit with the reality of that for a little while and think it through what it means for humanity. Just that one fact, and that's one tiny, tiny part of the catastrophe that we've already caused and that we're still causing and our politicians refuse to stop. So I'm sorry, I, I can't be quiet when I hear people saying things that are factually, scientifically incorrect. Mm-hmm.
2: I, 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 think I, think I think it's important. to, to um, follow that through in, in practical terms. Uh, No one that I've come across in in the IPCC circuit disputes that the the Earth has its own natural cycles and it it, it contributes and the sun contributes in its own ways. But as Zoe said, the overwhelming weight of scientific evidence now is around human contributions to accelerated disaster. Uh, And... So when we talk about you know the melting of, uh, of Antarctica, uh, you, if you mention that if, effectively in Southeast Asia, you're talking about the disappearance of, of Bangladesh, uh, and you know so a billion to two billion people being displaced. That there are few, if any, uh, positive consequences, and there are massive disruptive, damaging consequences. Uh, of doing nothing. Now, the key for me the, about the, the point that Mordecai made is that we, we are sitting in the of having to write a different economics. And it's a, an economics that will, will put emphasis on our interdependencies and the relocalization of sustainable ways of living, uh, there are fantastic examples in in richer and poorer countries of where this is happening and how it can be done, but it cannot be on the basis that let's not disrupt today's way of life in developed economies that have overindulged uh, on, uh, on gas and oil consumption. I mean, we are effectively, uh, it's a sort of gas and oil obesities that we're, we're dealing with, and we've got to pull back from that. The key to it is to get beyond the lobbies that currently tell us that these are somehow the only solutions that can be considered. And I, I say this slightly laughingly because when I was a member of parliament and bringing in the, the feed-in tariff uh, payments in the UK to, to support the growth of solar installations on people's homes, when I was doing that, against the opposition of a, a large part of, of the Labour Party, of which I am a part, I'm a part. Um, what I was conscious of was this inside the Department of Energy and Climate Change at the time. there was me ferreting away, being a pain in the backside. Uh, but at the same time, there were over 100 secondees from the big energy companies who were all there helpfully working to advise Government, either in deck or in Downing Street, on the policies that would you know take us forward, and and that took us into exactly the sort of mess that we are currently in, where there are massively distorting uh, subsidies and tax inducements for the fossil fuel sector, um, and real liabilities or obstacles put in front of the path into renewables or using less, and. In a sense, that, for me, is the most exciting space, a political space, that the movements like Zoe's and, and Claudia's really and to actually have to shove the political system into. And it's not just the mainstream media. It has to, for me, it has to shift that conversation into the centre of parliamentary debates as well. We can't just have... That it being shaped by the conservative right, who are still corporately funded and to some extent bankrolled by climate deniers across in the states, but also we have to radicalise the thinking within the, the Labour Party. I used to think that that was the job of Labour MPs to, to make that case, but actually, you know, the likes of Zoe et al around the planet are now driving the most creative agenda of my life. And I'm massively grateful for that. But there is a real urgency to the importance of listening to the different direction uh, that those movements would push us into. We don't Let's, get time, Let's
0: get a word from uh, Harry Earthling, who has joined us on Byline Radio. Hello, Harry Earthling. Welcome along. What do you want to say, Harry?
7: Hi there. Uh, um, Thanks for having me on. Um yeah, I was listening to everybody. I had I was at a point that I wanted to make about five minutes ago. Um, but you've been talking about so many other things. I could probably make about ten different points now. Um I agree with everyone. I think Zoe and Alan, you've made great points about so many different things. Um I think, you know, climate change is one of the it's the biggest thing facing the world right now, bigger even than Putin, I'd say, you know, we should have had a referendum on what the UK can do about climate change not on Putin's foreign policy, how to weaken the UK and get us out of Europe. Um, So, you know, I feel that the government, you know, they've got an agenda to, almost at times it feels to push along climate change. And I just find that incredibly scary. And I think we're seeing now people like Nigel Farage coming out and attacking net zero and right wing across the world. And they're all doing it just as Putin's invading Ukraine. The timing of it, doesn't seem coincidental to me. And I think we really need to be looking at the right-wing forces and people at like Koch in America and why they've been pushing climate change for a long time. And I think what Mordecai said earlier about uh, climate change not being the right word, I see it more as climate war. And I feel that they are almost weaponizing uh, the climate change against the global south in a sort of weird white supremacist kind of way to... You know, cause cr- crazy problems down there. I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, so I'll stop now. Thank you for having me. No, listen,
0: listen, 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 <laughs> uh, Harry. You're making you actually making a really interesting point, and um, I, I read an article from Byline Times printed, I think, in 2019, quite a long time ago, about a, a group of activists and organisations all organised or loosely affiliated to 55 Tufton Street, which, for those of you who don't know, is a kind of a network of conservative-associated right-wing think tanks and lobbying groups collectively pushing... Uh, a, a, uh, an agenda which questions climate change. Now, I worked for many years as a presenter on the BBC and still do occasionally when they let me on. And that sense that you always had to have. An opposing view. If you ever discuss climate change, I think, in fairness, the BBC now has moved on from this. And I think you no longer have to have the person who denies the reality of climate change. But for many years, you did. You could not discuss climate change without having the view that said, hold on a minute, is this a real thing? And we now know that many of the the voices... Were were were, were organised. They were. That they were. By they were affiliation. Affiliation. Tufton. Tufton Street.
3: Street. Adrian. Could I come in there? Um, of course, course, I, I uh, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with uh, I think everything you've, you've just said and I w- would also add that you know, I'm sure yourselves and many people listening have, have seen the Netflix film Don't Look Up you know, di- produced and directed by uh, Adam McKay uh, terrific, which of course, film. yeah, hit the nail on the head that, one of the nails on the head that the, despite the science being, you know rock solid and a consensus for many years around the world, it's still Underreported and played down by the media, and that includes the BBC and many others. You know, yes, there's more coverage, but they're still not treating this like our life depends on it. And our life does depend on it. You know, Alan knows this really clearly, Tessa knows this really clearly, Claudia and I know this really clearly. Many of you listening know this really clearly. Our lives genuinely depend on it. It's not about grandchildren and children anymore, it's about us who are alive now. You know, we, we um, I think, as Alan also indicated, you know, we, we Collapse can happen really quickly. You know, many people have been shocked by how quickly collapse can happen in a, in a society that looks uh, looks perhaps similar to those that we're used to, which and I don't mean that with all the dodgy overtones and stuff in any way, but it's like, you know, it doesn't take long for society to collapse. And we are no different, right? We are no different. And everyone in the media needs to connect with the reality of what the scientists are actually saying. We're saying, you know, everything that we rely on is very, very delicately interconnected in our modern, globally connected world. And right now, we've got global food prices and food supplies being threatened by the Russia-Ukraine war, et So you So know, all of this is interconnected to oil, fossil fuels, power, money, climate. We don't get to be in a single crisis anymore. We're in a cascading, multiplying, accelerating number of interconnected crises and oil and gas make everything worse. They destroy everything and they accelerate the climate crisis, which is ultimately totally existential and threatens everything that we need to survive. So, you know, the it's it 's incumbent on every person in the media to 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 connect genuinely with that and speak that truth because in a few years to come, you know by two thousand thirty, when my daughter will be not even thirty yet, it will be evident whether we have lost the ball and it 's rolled down the hill or not, or whether we 've perhaps got a chance of saving uh, the the uh, stable climate that we 've come to to know and love, but actually, you know, it's not stable anymore, but we might be able to hold on to to enough of it to avoid complete collapse. But, you know, we all need to to imagine ourselves in that 2030 position, looking back and thinking, actually, if we knew the truth, what did we do? And, And every single person in the media needs to ask themselves that question as well, because you'll never regret taking action now. You will only in future regret what you didn't do. It's an interesting book. Fucking
0: let you go. Let you go just because your line's a little scratchy now. Great, you've made a fantastic contribution, or at least, yeah, thank you. If you switched off your uh, microphone, which stops mine feeding back, which is brilliant. Thank you. But don't you don't have to disappear. But just uh, that you've done what I really wanted you to do. Thank you, Uh, Claudia. Zoe raises this question of this urgency, this sense of immediacy that we all need to have about this crisis that we all suddenly have now about Ukraine. Now, I've got to say that uh, apart from people like Zoe and Alan, amongst people of my generation, broadly our generation, there really isn't that sense of urgency. And that may be because we've been... fed nonsense by the mainstream media for many years. And if the mainstream media were galvanised by this, then maybe things would be very, very different. What about your friends, Claudia? Are people who you know, who are 24, seized by this moment?
4: I think that there's a real mixture. I think, like you said, the media has so much to account for. Um, You know, we were talking about how, yes, finally, climate change is accepted. As something that is happening, still not as the crisis that it is. Um, and I think there's a few points I'd like to make about that. And one of that is that. you know, again, we talk about it, but we don't talk about it as the existential threat that it is. And the other thing is that I feel the way it is presented, at least over here in this part of the world, is as something that affects the global South. It is something that happens in other places, but it is not seen as something that is going to impact us. And as we've touched on, you know, the IPCC report makes it so incredibly clear that this is something that is going to affect every single person on the planet, no matter where you are. And by the time that that happens, by the time that here in the UK, it is our homes that are fed before, by the time it is um, that we cannot feed our children because, you know, there's no food on the supermarkets because of crop failure. It will be too late. You know, we have this tiny window of opportunity now and we need to grab it and we need to do everything that we possibly can to create a future for ourselves. That's why we, you know are taking this action. That's why Just a Boyle exists as a coalition, and I hope that some people interested will want to do something, you know, will care enough for the future, for the future of their children that they'll want to join us. Um, in terms of how I feel young people feel there's still a mixture. I still feel like for some people, there's some real disassociation because you know it's not talked about the way it needs to be in the mainstream, but also there are some conversations that I expected to never be having. Um, the other day I was sat in a room with some people at my university and we were all talking about how we are too scared um, to have children, how you know a lot of us grew up thinking that we'd wanna have a family and now, The idea of bringing someone into this world is is terrifying. I look at children all the time and I just think about what kind of future they're going to face. And like Zoe said, that's why I do what I do. That's why I hope more people will take action, because the only time we have to act is now. And I can't live with myself. Looking back at this and thinking, I didn't do everything I possibly could to try and fight for some kind of livable future that isn't just a future that's filled with death and suffering, and that's why we have to just stop oil.
2: I think that is a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful comment, uh, and and that is that in a sense, what I think parliaments across the planet have to be grasping. What Claudia has just said—that the only time is now, and the only debate. Is how, uh, and so we need to move into that space. Uh, and if there's if there are silver linings, it is that that there are some fantastic things happening around the planet that answer some of, of Claudia's Claudius' questions. But we don't have enough time, to, uh, Adrian, to, to go into these. But you know, I would just say people should have a look at Denmark's um, state of green. It's called, and this is. How to construct a circular economics that makes more use of what we have in its reuse and and moves away from the sort of consumption, consume and discard economics of today. And it puts circularity back into the process. Now, we're not going to be able to avoid food crises. But there are some really exciting answers to this. In the UK, people forget that we, during the Second World War, we were producing food from within our towns and cities uh, at six times the uh, amount per acre as as was coming from the countryside. Partly because we didn't have workers to go out in the countryside during the war. But uh, towns and cities were the location uh, of food production. And you're seeing that. Reemerging in Berlin, in Paris, in Montreal, where they've a thing called Lufa Farms has taken over the rooftops of factories. They put greenhouses on top. They're taking the warm air from inside the factories, and they're growing foods hydroponically to produce, I think, at the moment, twenty to twenty-five thousand shopping trolleys a week of food for themselves all year round. So, in a sense, the relocalization of how we give ourselves food security, water security, energy security, all of this is doable. But we have to break the corporate control of government policy making around the planet, which has always been about feeding their bank accounts rather than feeding the the public or providing energy security. Mm.
0: I was just thinking, Alan, it, you know, if, if instead of having all those oil companies and gas companies around the table yesterday, if Boris Johnson had had Claudia around the table, we might end up with a very different energy strategy policy than the one that we are likely to get, even though, of course, that will include renewable I mean, there's no suggestion that the government won't include renewables in that. We've moved beyond that point.
2: Yeah, but it has to be center stage. Mm. Anything that tries to dress up a policy around more drilling in the North Sea or a presumption that somehow nuclear is the answer. This this is chasing yesterday's addictions uh, as tomorrow's solutions, and it just won't work. The, the better solutions are entirely about around renewables and around using and wasting less. Yeah. Uh, and I think if we ask Claudia and Zoe and Tessa to be the architects of that, you'd get a much better set of policies than anything that currently you get out of Parliament.
0: Yeah, I'm very interested as well. Harry referencing the Global South and Claudia picking up on that really well and saying, look, this isn't a problem for the Global South. It's very often predicated upon that in the West, in the global North, if you like. But the reality is if this hits and when this hits, this will affect all of us. And again, the framing of these things is so important. I don't know if you noticed, Harry, that there's been talk about... Potential food prices, significant food prices in the West and in the UK, for two reasons. One is the 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 amount of wheat that is grown in Ukraine, which perhaps we won't have access to because of the war there, but also because of lack of access to Russian fertilisers. So the idea that we might be short of food is recognised as a feature somewhere in this war in Ukraine, this invasion of Ukraine, but as a consequence of climate change it's it, it, it's just not talked about generally but it's real I was inviting you back in there Harry go on
7: sure sorry thank you yes um, <laughs> uh, yes no I've seen that um, I mean I, I, I kind of following up actually in everything that Claudia said as you say I agree with so much of that I mean I think it's it's tragic when we see younger people Saying, you know, they're scared to have children, they're not they're thinking about not having children. I mean, if you stop and think about that for a second, what whatever other period in humanity of our children have been saying we can't have kids, you know, this is just madness. I'm in my forties, I've not actually had kids yet. I'm having that conversation now with my wife. And it it's just unbelievable, I think. I mean, but I feel that this should make us think. This is why we all have to fight and we all have to stand up now because we should not be having these conversations. You know, we we have to do everything we can to fix this so that we can have children and we can make this beautiful world. And as Alan was saying, renewables have to take center stage here. This is our opportunity. I mean, all you need to do, I watched, uh, there's a film just out on Netflix just now, it's number one film, um, The Adam Project I watched last night. You know, that's showing in a way, it's like, that's kind of like unusual for hollywood these days it's positive science fiction it's showing i mean obviously bad things happen in it for anyone that's seen it but i won't give anything away but no, no spoilers <laughs> yes yeah, no spoilers but you know it's there's bits of it when it's it's very it's a bit like don't look up in its kind of message in a way but in a more subtle way and it shows a lot of the bad things that are happening now and how we could do something better in the future um also talking of Netflix, um Zoe mentioned uh, Don't Look Cup. I mean, I think one other thing when you're mentioning Tufton Street, one thing that everybody should watch in Netflix is the family uh, documentary about the right the right wing behind Trump and when you sh- and that shows their links with Putin and Xi and all around the world, the right wing. and I think that is so important what Alan was saying about seeing the bigger picture and about what the right wing are doing. Yeah, well, Harry,
0: I should say as well, uh, Sean Norris at Byline Times has done some brilliant work about Russian funding for the European far right as well. The amount of oligarch money that's been circulating around Europe, we obviously are aware of it here in the UK, and the sanctions on people like Roman Abramovich, the owner of Chelsea, but this is not specific to the UK, and Sean's done some brilliant work around Mm. the amount of money being directed by oligarchs towards fostering this kind of macho, nationalistic, far-right project, which includes denying women their reproductive rights and so on. Really reactionary stuff. So this is a real and active threat. Thanks very much indeed for that, Harry.
7: Uh, I'm going to get Alan to do a a it.
0: Go on, sorry, Harry.
7: Just look where Steve Bannon's gone the last 10 years. You see the whole network, basically.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Harry. Uh, thank you. Uh, just to remind you, by the way, I mentioned in uh, Sean Norris there, my colleague at Byline Times, if you do want to support the work we're doing on Byline Radio, please tag out a subscription or a membership to the Byline Times. If you do so, and I think... Uh, Basic subscription costs £39 a year. If you take out that subscription, you'll get a monthly newspaper, The Byline Times, brilliantly edited by my colleague Hardeep Matharu. It's a fantastic read, but your money doesn't only pay for the newspaper, it helps to support Byline Radio, The Byline Times podcast byline tv and our news breaking website bylinetimes.com we report without fear without favor and we're answerable to no one other than you our readers, No corporate interest, no proprietor, no oligarch behind the scenes. So if you can, and I expe- understand that not everybody can at the moment, but if you can, please take out a subscription to Byline Times. Get more details at bylinetimes.com. I just wanted to finish, Alan, by uh, talking to me. You, you wrote a fantastic blog covering many of these I- issues recently. In it, there was also a really fascinating bit of history about carbon wars. So for people who don't understand or don't know the history of carbon wars, and I'll confess my ignorance, just give us a a brief resume of that, please.
2: Well, what I wanted people to do was just to understand something of the role that carbon has played uh, in the societal changes that, that have taken place. At one stage, we all lived within uh, renewable energy economies. Um, that was usually based on, on just t- harvesting wood and lighting fires. But we, were, we lived in dispersed societies then uh, with very few rights uh, of, for ordinary people. I mean, this was a sort of feudal existence. And in a way, what happened for the Industrial Re- Revolution was that carbon in the form of coal changed that. Um, and it did bring... Um, rights for workers because it concentrated the workplace miners dug coal in huge quantities uh, in coal mines then railway workers transported it in large com- quantities around the country and dockers loaded it in large quantities onto boats. so in a sense it provided the basis upon which Workers uh, and workers' pay in terms of conditions could all be negotiated from much stronger positions than had previously been the case. But at the same time, you had the growth of big corporate powers that began to replace or work with old imperial uh, powers that were playing fast and loose around the planet, usually delivering wars to, uh, over the ownership of the next phase of carbon which was of uh, of oil and so i took there's a really good book um by timothy mitchell called carbon democracy which is about a decade or so old now but it traces through the way in which the big corporates have played the game often bringing governments down in order to entrench their interest in the ownership of carbon and a post-carbon economics Takes us into a, a much different approach to decentralisation and democratisation of everything, and I feel that that's probably the most exciting spaces uh, in which w- we now need to take the political and uh, environmental conversations. They, 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 they aren't, they aren't any, longer, any longer. They aren't any they aren't longer based base, around unlimited growth. Yeah. So, sorry, so, sorry,
0: sorry, sorry. Zoe, Zoe, can you turn off your microphone, please, while Alan's talking? Because it, it creates feedback for some reason.
2: Sorry Go on about on. that. So, the future is not going to be about unlimited growth, it's about circularity and how we put back at least as much, probably more than what we take out. And if there's anything to get excited about, it is to see that they the app not just the urgency that this is effectively the only choice we have. I used to, um have a t-shirt that's uh, had the Che Guevara statement on that said, uh, be reasonable, demand the impossible. And and actually, the impossible now is the only possible way out of the mess that we're in. Uh, and it is, there are so many really good examples of where and how we can make not only the impossible possible, we can make it sustainable and democratic too. And if that isn't the best gift to the generations that follow, I don't know what is. Zoe, go on, you were, keen to say, you were keen to say something.
3: Yeah, thank you, Adrian. And uh, yeah, Alan, uh, the picture you paint is, is a picture that so many people would want to move towards, I'm sure, a post-carbon economy, um, fairer, local, more resilient, more just, more peaceful, et cetera. But this change is not going to happen on its own, right? this fossil fuel economy, these fossil fuel politicians, the corporations, those who benefit from the heart of this current system, that they're not gonna give this up on their own. So we have to make it happen, don't we? So That's uh, for, <laughs> for yourselves and for anyone else listening who would like to be part of the group of ordinary people who are going to try to do their damnedest to peacefully make this change happen or give it some extra help along its way, um, please do check us out, juststopoil.org it is time to stop our government opening new fossil fuel projects, we can have no more oil and gas if we want peace and justice in a survivable world, thank you
0: Alright Zoe thank you Alan as well um, i give the final word to uh, Claudia, Claudia, what do you want to say to, to round us off? Hello, Claudia. Are you there?
4: Oh, hello. Sorry. I think (laughs) I lost you for a second.
0: Yeah, it's all right. I was just going to give you the the chance to kind of close our debate for today.
4: Uh, I would love to. Thank you. Um, Echoing what Zoe said, it's been wonderful today listening to the solutions, you know, that we know exist. We still have this tiny window of opportunity to create this beautiful future that we want. But like Zoe said, it isn't just going to happen. No one is coming to save us, especially not our government. And this change has to come from people power. It has to come from people saying, we've had enough. We're not going to accept this anymore. We are going to fight for this p- future. We d- we refuse to die quietly. So if you do want this future, if you've had enough of this government you know, dragging us down this path of death and destruction, then please do check out Just Stop Oil. We're on social media and you can talk to us, you can come together with a group of people who are going to fight for this future, who are not going to just let this government continue dragging us down this path. We have to just stop oil.
0: Claudia, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks to Tessa Khan. Thanks to Zoe Cohen. Thanks to Claudia. Thanks to Alan Simpson as well. If I could ask each and every one of you, if you've enjoyed this conversation, to please, when I put up the recording of it, to retweet it, to share it on Facebook. There will be a recording put on the Twitter stream very shortly, and it will also be available on the Byline Times podcast. We're talking about some of the most important issues. No, correct myself. The most important issue of our time so please spread the word thank you very much indeed for taking part thank you very much indeed for listening we'll be back again tomorrow with more byline radio at noon thank you see you soon